And it might seem like this is a little bit of a repetitious one this morning, um, but I cannot easily walk away from a very precious passage about God's grace. And we want to revisit this from last Sunday. We looked at it in the larger context of a lot of verses. We went through 13 verses last week. And to give us a picture, really, of the, of the argument that Paul is presenting of what it is to glory in as a Christian. What it is that, that sets us one apart as a true servant of God. And what it is that exposes the false prophets, those who are serving themselves, servants of Satan, Paul refers to them as. And rather than looking at all the credentials that we would emphasize, Paul takes us into a realm of experience that few, if any of us, really grasp. And of course, having gone through a message like that last Sunday... Um, God gave me a little taste of it early on. By Sunday night, I was already running around outside up to my knees in mud and uh, lots of issues like that. We can talk about the inconveniences of life, but frankly, as much as people were dismayed with what was going on in my house Sunday night and all day Monday and into Tuesday, um, it has nothing in comparison to what Paul has talked about here. But we tend to compare ourselves and our inconveniences with sufferings. And hopefully this morning we are going to have a better study of this. And the reason we need to study this is because it is so foreign to our experience. Because it is something that we pretty sure happens out there somewhere, but not here. It happens to other people, but not really to me. And I don't know that many of us are really prepared in our heart and soul to confront it, not face on, and certainly not with full force. We have been lulled to sleep in the area of what it means for God's grace to be sufficient and that we can boast in infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon us, that we will pleasure and people making fun of us. We'll pleasure, take pleasure in having needs, in being persecuted, in being in distress, as long as we're doing it all for Christ's sake. And this takes us to our passage we read earlier this morning in First Peter, and we're going to be spending a significant amount of time there to really fine-tune and get a little more precision upon our understanding of Paul's concept here. How can we take pleasure and how is this something to be boasted in in our weakness, in our infirmities, in our distresses? And yet God calls us to do just that. And we just sang about it in the last verse of this last song, Born to Die, that we'll surrender our will to His and therefore... His suffering might become our suffering. Um, Not a lot of volunteers for that these days. We sing the words, but seldom do we grasp the significance of that. And as we look into our passage this morning, we need God's help, so let's go, Lord, in prayer this 
day. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your goodness to us. And Lord, we do also thank you for your grace. You grant to us the strength, courage, the endurance. Lord, we also know that grace is really only limited by our faith, by our willingness to surrender ourselves to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you might work in our hearts and minds to convict us of the smallness of our faith. But, Lord, we know that even a little surrendered to you becomes much. So, Lord, while we pray that you might increase our faith, that your grace might be magnified in our life, we do know that this is ultimately a working that you must do. While we are the passive recipients, we know that we must be recipients and make ourselves such. Help us in that respect today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have visited this topic frequently, and I don't pretend to think that you are not unaware of what is coming. Uh, We have taken time to talk about suffering uh, on many occasions in the past, and really the reason why is because of the nature of our Christianity. It demands that we come back to this idea uh, to recognize the dangers that confront us in the ease in which we can walk and move and conduct business in this world and still call ourselves Christians. But I want you to understand that that is really isolated and becoming more and more isolated to really just the confines of this country. This past week, little article appears. This doesn't get a lot of press. No big pictures. Just a little article about the Central African Republic and the slaughter that is going on there as radical Muslims move through a town and a village um, and by the words of one of the survivors, they killed us like chickens. Just went house to house, slashing and murdering everyone known by the name of Christ. We know of the conflicts that are going on and other predominantly Muslim and also in Hindu circles. We see what's transpiring around the world, but we're insulated, really, from any experience of that. And I am fascinated by the interest of the church in America that I hear on the radio predominantly about praying for them. And I've grown concerned that we want to export the comfortable Christianity that we deal with. I want to say enjoy, but you shouldn't be enjoying that. You should be very deeply concerned about how easy our Christianity is. We want to export it to the world. We want all Christians everywhere to be as comfortable and, I fear, as lax as we are in their Christianity. We want them it to go easy on them. And so we have a gentleman who has gone in and has 
and gotten imprisoned, and so we're going to make it a big national effort to get him in prison. Please pray for this pastor in Iran and his imprisonment. We want because we know that really, if we're going to, uh, if God's at work, this guy's got to be delivered. That this is our corporate action as a church. This is God's call upon us: is to deliver men out of suffering. And certainly we have some biblical record of such things. Peter's imprisonment, the people praying, and, and his miraculous release. And certainly there's a time and place for that according to the will of God. But what I seldom find people calling others to prayer with regard to suffering Christians to the persecuted is for the persecutors. And I referred to that in the past as well that the main force of Christians enduring suffering, even of death, the main force initially is that of bringing those who cause their suffering to Christ. And this is borne out again and again, and certainly the testimony of Paul here in 2 Corinthians is, is one such occasion, one such uh, example for us to look into and, and see how much he is willing to endure that some might have the gospel. We have other more uh, modern uh, uh, instances as well. And we think of the Alca Indians in Ecuador that were reached by the sacrifice of five men on a river's beach. who were seemingly slaughtered for no reason. Yet the very savages that took their lives became saints. This is no empty gesture we're talking about. This is a purposeful work of God. And Paul realizes that. But not only does this set me up as a credentialed individual before you that is, that is now worthy of your ear, um, it is the means by which I bring glory to God and His grace, both by the occasions of suffering and also the extended suffering of His thorn in the flesh that never went away. So there's the persistent ones and the occasional ones. And Paul endured them all with an aspiration, and that is that the gospel be preached, that Christ be glorified. It's an aspiration that we've largely lost track of. We think that we are suffering if we have a little water where we don't want it. If we have a little opposition in our community over building codes or things along that line, we don't really understand suffering as Paul talked about and Peter and Christ. 
that when we sing a song about taking up the cross of Calvary in our Savior's name, that we're talking about a course of life whose destiny is suffering and whose end in this world is death. We sing a song, Born to Die, about Christ, and we fail sometimes to recognize that we are called to fill up, that is complete, the sufferings of Christ, and that in many sense we are born again to die for others. And yet, we're really not that interested. Uh, it, instead of being able to even draw upon our life and its comforts, we can barely get some finances together to take care of that. Maybe on a short-term missions trip, as long as there's some tourist stuff activity going on in the midst of that, we'll, we'll lend ourselves to it, but certainly nothing substantial. When we get to 1 Peter, that we read earlier, 1 Peter chapter 4, I invite you to turn there. We find a added perspective, and really, Peter's picked this up in chapter 3. Uh, we didn't read that earlier, but we want to do so now. It says uh, that we are not to return, I'm in verses, chapter 3, verses 8 and following, be of one mind, have compassion for another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, know that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. That we are to anticipate evil. We are to anticipate reviling. We are to anticipate this from the world. And our response is to not to give back the same as what we have received, but something much superior. Verse 10 and following, a quotation. He says, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, not even to talk, and his lips from speaking deceit. Don't even speak evil. Verse 11 is what I want to key in on. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so it's very easy for us to pick up the place of the Lord in this passage instead of the place of, the, of men, of righteous men. We want to take the place of the Lord and we're going we're gonna to make those evil people suffer for being evil. Not your job. <laughs> Not my job. That's God's part. His part is to discern between men and to separate the righteous from the unrighteous and to pour His wrath out on the unrighteous. That's His work. Our work in this passage that is to turn away from evil, to do good, to seek peace, to pursue it, to be righteous. And in fact... Our prayers themselves are completely, utterly dependent upon it. If we do not carry this heart toward those that oppose the gospel, God is not interested in hearing your prayers. His ears are closed to them. And so when I confront these, and I guess I have to thank social media for this. I didn't realize how pervasive the nastiness is out there. 
um, toward our leadership. Whether it be national or our bosses or a church, um, just how pervasive it is and how uh, willingly we are to communicate this if we tag it with a little picture or saying or uh, just to like something that is speaking horrific things, completely un- unbiblical, unchristian things, and promoting it as something that we should all applaud. And my Bible says that such speech, such pursuits, hinder our prayers. They are not the righteousness the Lord calls us to. He will judge the wicked. It's for us to do good, to turn away from evil, to seek peace, to pursue it. And in the course of doing these things, we will encounter evil. That will be focused against us, and this brings us to chapter 4. And again, the verse 10 becomes the focal point that is the connecting verse between what we just read there in 2 Corinthians about His grace being sufficient for us. And here in verse 10, Peter talks about each one of us has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That we are to care for and fervently love one another. We're supposed to be hospitable. I love verse 9, without grumbling. It throws that in there. Oh, don't you hate those verses that say those things? We're supposed to do it without grumbling. Don't complain about it. We're glad to participate in this ministry one to another. Um, We are stewards, that is, managers of the many-faceted grace of God. And one of those facets that Paul wants to communicate to us in 2 Corinthians is the facet of God's sustaining us in the midst of suffering. And Peter is going to very quickly get right there as well. As he draws us to verse 12. And I have to tell you, verse 12 is a great verse for Americans. Because what I've just spoken of is really what it speaks of. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. You see, it has become so foreign to us that we can't really even readily identify it. Right? We get our sensitivities ruffled up if someone curses in our midst, or uh, not at us, but just in our midst. We just overhear, and, or, or they're, they're not cursing at us, they're cursing about their work, or about the boss, or about the government, or about their taxes, or whatever it is, and, and we get stirred up just at that. We get stirred up and, and uh, think that, that, oh, we're suffering if we have to deal with uh, criminals occasionally. Not that they're doing any criminal activity towards us, just that we have to look at them and know they exist and deal with them, pay taxes to incarcerate them. See, we have this view that real suffering is abnormal. It's strange. It's unusual. It shouldn't be expected. And yet, all through Scripture, from the beginning in Acts of the church, um, the statement, 
that we continually come back to is that through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom of God. That we endure it. That when we get to Revelation chapter 1, one of the first things we find out is that we're going to have tribulation that we're going to have, we, the church, is going to have to confront and deal with. And tribulation is the common course for the Christian life. And on reference, I was giving there Revelation 1 verse 9, and here's a third of the apostolic writers. You have Paul, you have Peter, now we have John saying, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John understood his place, that he was counted in this brotherhood of tribulation, this brotherhood of suffering, this brotherhood of persecution. That this was the norm. And as Peter describes, that this is not strange, this is not unusual. But in our experience, it is extraordinarily unusual. To such a degree that we have difficulty even identifying it. We see it far off. We see it out there, disconnected from our personal experience. And frankly, we hardly know how to pray with regard to it. We pray for their protection rather than for power in their testimony. We pray for them to avoid it as we have avoided it, rather than embracing it and rejoicing in it. For the truth of the matter is, seldom will we be found rejoicing in tribulation. And yet, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 13, to do exactly what we find Paul doing in 2 Corinthians, and that is, verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. He goes on, verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. The Spirit Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The expectation by Peter, by the author of Hebrews, by Paul, by John, um, by James himself as well, is that Christians will suffer if they are faithfully following Christ. And so when we come to a body of Christians who have largely not suffered, Um, one of the first questions that has to be thrown out there is, why not? We just got done last week looking at being able to, to recognize someone who is not a servant of God, but a servant of Satan, and that is that they glory in all these things that are not of Christ. They are not the emblems, the, the, the hallmarks of those who are true servants of God. 
And Paul picks up on some of those hallmarks and he says, yeah, I could talk about them, but there's really no value in talking about those. Let's talk about something that is of true value, and that is, what am I suffering for Christ's sake? Now, where are we in that spectrum? If this is the way that we can really start to measure the true servant of God from the false servant of God, I would contend that behind even that, we can begin to maybe examine the true child of God from the false child of God. Are we following God so radically that the world hates us? I'm not saying that they're annoyed by us. I'm not saying that they tolerate us or put up with us. I'm not saying that we are following after them enough to kind of have people say, oh, you're weird or you're, you're, you're different. I'm talking about to the point that they hate us. We are that committed to righteousness. We are that committed to godliness. We are that committed to being so unique in the world. To the early apostolic writers, the writers of Scripture that we have here, the strange thing would be to not have trials, to not have persecution. And we live in that category of people. And that, to me, is kind of frightening. It makes me ask a lot of questions of myself. Can I really claim any spiritual superiority when I suffer nothing? I go to India to teach a class. And frankly, I'm standing there looking at young men who are getting ready to go replace pastors in villages where the previous pastor was burned to death in his house. And I'm looking at them thinking, what do I have to teach you? You're the real deal. I could be a pretender. If I use the measure that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians to distinguish between a true teacher and a false teacher out in, outside of the confines of the comforts of this country, um, I don't measure up. And so I can sit there and look at a young man, Anup, and I, that I've never seen or heard from, and I, as far as I know, no one else has either, who went out to replace his pastor, who had been burned to death in his house by Hindus on a rampage. He was going right back to that village with the gospel. He may be in glory by now, I don't know. And as I sat there and engaged him and saw him just soak up anything from God's word he could get. Oh, he didn't have any fancy degrees. He had no library, certainly not one that could come close to what I have access to. But he was prepared to go out there and give the gospel, even if it cost him his life. That wasn't a foreign thing to him. 
That was something he had seen happen. He had an example to follow his own pastor. You see, the strange thing is for Christians not to suffer. That's the oddity. And Peter here says, listen, this is the norm. The norm is is that Christians should suffer. And we're not talking about suffering because you are in rebellion to authority and and lawless. Um, Peter talks about that. You know, don't you dare go out there and and because you got in prison for breaking the law, which you should have tried to keep, um, that you're going to say, I'm suffering. I'm being persecuted. Well, you broke the law. You deserve it. Okay? I'm going to applaud the government, not you. Don't rejoice in suffering for evil. But if you are suffering as a Christian, there's no shame in that. And yet we have shamed that to the point that we want to pray you out of it. Let me pray you out of that suffering. Why? So I can be less genuine? Rather, we want to be delivered through it that we should anticipate this, this act of the world against us even as the world acted, and we're not talking about just um, the heathen world, but the, but the pseudo-Christian world uh, acting against Christ. Just as the Jews acted against one of their own, their own Messiah. And hence Peter talks about the fact that judgment starts in the church, then it will be spread out to the unbelievers, to the lost, to the world. Begins in the house of God, and we are purified by trials. Um, James talks about that. Don't you get upset. Um, There's a fourth author, do you get the picture that all these writers have this in common? And we don't share that commonality with them. James says, don't be worried if you fall into diverse trials and tribulations. Knowing that the trial of your faith produces some great stuff. So embrace it. Rejoice in it. Be thankful you're kind of worthy of it. Now you get to be enveloped in the grace of God in such ways you have never, ever dreamed of. And now you can be a steward of that grace that you finally experienced. We can't really be good stewards of it because we've never embraced it. Because we've never embraced what it takes to gain grace. Paul rightly in Romans tells the Romans, listen, you don't have to sin more for grace to abound more. That's wrong. That's error. If you want grace to abound in your life, pursue godliness, pursue doing good at all costs. And when the costs come, now you can find yourself cradled in grace. And your ministry will not be reduced. It'll be multiplied. This goes contrary to the thinking of the world. But the thinking of the world is foolishness in God's plan. And so we have opportunity to glorify God when we suffer for His sake. We have the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God resting upon us. And while the world is trying to destroy Him, 
And on their part, they will suffer for that. They will, they will be judged for that. They're trying to do injury to the work of Christ. And for that, their, their objective will be measured by God. Their side of the equation of, in, of inflicting punishment will be dealt with by God. Not my job, not your job, and not the job of government, frankly. starting to get close to touching some of that on Sunday night. Um, but we find God says, I'll take care of them. On their part, they're trying to, be, uh, to destroy Christ, to destroy the church, to destroy God's word, to destroy the gospel. They're trying to silence it. So from their perspective of inducing suffering, they'll be judged. God will take care of them. They're the not, not the ones glorifying God. They're trying to destroy his work. But when you accept that suffering, when it lands on you and lands heavy on you, and you stand, you endure, you uh, receive it and still love and want to minister to those, and you purge yourself of the hatred of the world, of speaking evil of those who have done evil to you, but rather than return evil, you return good, you return the gospel for anything they speak against you. Now, what you have done is you've turned what they have tried to do to destroy the kingdom of God, you have turned it to glorify the kingdom of God. And perhaps one of the nicest examples of this that we have in God's Word is Joseph. The brothers sent him off into slavery. Were they glorifying God in the midst of doing that? No. Their intent, Joseph says, well, you intended harm. You did evil. That was your intent. And God will Deal with that. That's not my job. Joseph could have easily said, all right, guys, <laughs> it's been a few years coming. I have devised some incredible ways for you to suffer for what you did to me, and you justly deserve it. Joseph had the authority to do that. He had the power to do that. What did he miss? He missed the will to do it. He didn't have the will to do it because it wasn't his job. And he recognized that. And instead he comes to them, opens his arms to them, and this, this great phrase that we all are very familiar with, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. And here is a man who has suffered incredible injustices at the hands of his siblings. At the hands of a master that he served faithfully. At the hands of a prison system that he functioned within and served it. And even at the hands of a butler that forgot him. Joseph kept serving the Lord. And his conclusion should be our conclusion, but we can't ever get to that conclusion that God means it for our good because we're never really interested in getting on that track, uh, that train track that Joseph was on, that leads to Egypt and bondage and prison and being forgotten. 
That wasn't just a month or two of his life. <laughs> that wasn't just for a week. Joseph's a mature, we'll use that word because I'm getting older now, I use mature instead of old. He's a mature man. He's got his own kids. He's got his family. He's running Egypt. He's been through it. And his conclusion is, God's faithful. And I would have never recognized just how faithful God is if I hadn't gone through it. I would have still been the kind of spoiled, braggadocious kid back there with Jacob. The favorite. But it's here, in Egypt, in bondage, in prison, that I discovered God's grace. I hear a lot of Christians talking about wanting God's grace. But we don't want to partake in the road to it. We hear a lot of Christians talking about, I want to glorify God, but they don't want to walk on the road that leads to it. I have a lot of Christians who want to talk about rejoicing and praising God, but they don't want to get on the road to it. Because the path that leads to that is a path not of applause, but of reproach. James, John, Peter, Paul, and could we add many others who recognize the wonder of God's grace gives me the opportunity to participate in suffering for His name's sake and to boast in it that the power of Christ could rest upon me. Lots of Christians talking about, I want the power of Christ flowing through me. Brace yourself. For that to happen is going to require you to have infirmities. Reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses, all for Christ's sake. Because this is so foreign to us, I believe all these aspects of deity are foreign to us in many respects. His power is foreign to us. We can sit and theologically debate and discuss it, but we cannot experience it. His grace, His glory, His spirit, His power, and even His answer to prayers. We find all dependent upon will you carry this cross? Will you carry his cross. It's not dependent upon attending church and padded seats and then a heated building <laughs> and listening to messages that you probably won't remember by tomorrow. We've had some interesting discussions about that in my house lately. If anyone, if anyone uh, can remember what was preached 
three weeks ago. And frankly, I didn't fare any better than anyone else. And I preached the message. No, our understanding and relationship with God is made pure, is defined by trials. And it is the way of our culture to avoid them at all costs instead of embracing them at all costs. And so I want to conform. I want to fit in. I want to get along. And these are the watchwords of Christianity. And we have confused living at peace and doing good with I just want to fit in and get along and blend. When the world is at war with itself, living at peace is radical. And Peter, James, Paul, John, all give us clear instruction. And then, of course, we have our Lord and Savior himself give us clear instruction of how to engage the world, that we ought to anticipate that if we are true followers, radical, radically committed to Christ, that we ought to have this as our common experience, and that is suffering. We have a movement out there in the Pentecostal that's experiential. Um, and, you know, have you experienced this? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced this? And, and they want to measure these experiences based upon your walk with God. And if you haven't had this, then you haven't really been filled with the Holy Spirit. If you haven't had this, then you really don't know what the power of God is all about. If you haven't had this experience, it's fascinating that all those experiences, among all of them that I've heard listed and watched and seen them portray, I've never seen them describe suffering as the experience of spirituality. And yet God's Word declares it over and over and over and over again. Because this is a false teaching package for American consumption. These are all good experiences. Oh, I would love to laugh uncontrollably for hours. If that's the measure of the Holy Spirit. I would love to have healing. I'd love to have speaking other languages. I'd love, or gibberish, whichever one it is. Um, I'd love to have all those experiences. Why don't we ever Declare ourselves, I would love to suffer. But to do that, I'd have to live a radical kind of Christianity that's just in your face. That radical. I believe it still would produce that, even in this land, quote unquote, of toleration, if we just radically said, I'm going to follow God's word. And the cost is nothing compared to the glory, the power, the grace, and the spirit that God offers. Oh, we have that kind of spirit. While I see people fighting and not fighting, they are expressing themselves about don't leave out Christmas and, and use the term holidays instead. And I... Happened to wear a tie that says Happy Holidays today instead of Merry Christmas. I probably offended some of you. Sorry. You see, we think that's the fight. 
Why in the world should the world use our Savior's name for anything? They have no right to it. Why are we fighting that fight? If we were truly living Christ-like, they would be coming after us. Not us picking fights out there over whether or not it's Christmas or a holiday. You see how warped we are. And we've, because of that, we've lost track of the power of God, the grace of God, the Spirit of God, the glory of God, that all through these passages are totally dependent upon suffering for God. So being greeted with happy holidays is not suffering for God, okay? By the way, holiday means holy day, which means a set-aside day. Let's really seek not just to go out there, I'm going to find suffering. No, the way you do that is by living a radically righteous Christianity. And the world will hate you. When you speak the truth, the world will hate that. When you call sin, sin, the world will hate that. And we have some embryonic battles like that starting in our nation. But you see, we've backed ourselves off of it. We've backed ourselves off away from calling homosexuality sin and now we just want to defend marriage. You know, and I've heard this on the radio repeatedly by national figures, you know, have your lifestyle but don't take over the title of marriage for that. Have your lifestyle? No. Your lifestyle is wickedness, is sin. It's immorality. Why have we abandoned saying that? And say it a few times. Say it at your school. Say it at your university. Say it at your job. See what kind of response you get when you say homosexuality is sin. God hates it. Ah, speaking the truth kind of like Jesus did, now you're starting to understand the path to suffering. Is to speak the truth. We're doing it in a loving way. Don't you dare go out there and say, no, you're caught in a sin. It's going to lead to your destruction and your judgment by God. Get out of it. Through Christ Jesus and His shed blood. The world might hate you, but that's the calling of God upon us, to speak the truth. To stand for righteousness. To be holy as He is holy. And the natural course of life will bring these against us. Their intent to do evil. But God's intent is to do good. Do you trust Him? Do you trust him enough to suffer for his name's sake? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us.
It strengthens us to endure whatever is brought our way. And Lord, we know that that doesn't always come just from the world, but it comes from within the body of Christ, within our very family sometimes. That antagonism against the truth, against holiness, against righteousness, against godliness. And Lord, we confess before you that we have many times swallowed the truth instead of speaking it. I have done that. We have done our righteousness in secret so as not to offend. Lord, forgive us for this is sin. This is the evil you spoke of that we are to flee Lord, help us that we might be agents of righteousness, of truth, the gospel, of your kingdom. That we might enjoy the grace, glory, power, and spirit of that kingdom, even today. Lord, we are now aware that the intermediate step there is to take up our cross and follow you. Give us the courage to do so this week. To your glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.